ahead and, and take a seat. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Acts. If you're with the uh, threes and fours class, you're dismissed now. Thank you for worshiping with us. For the rest of us, we are in the book of Acts chapter 11. And if you don't have a copy of God's word with you this morning and you'd like a, uh, a physical copy to look off of, just slip up your hand. Zach Penwell's coming down the aisle with extra Bibles. And he would be glad to put one in your hand. Acts chapter 11. If uh, you missed last week in the explanation of why we are here in Acts 11, you might be confused this morning. Because uh, it's the normal pattern of our church that, that basically what we do is we take whole books of the Bible and we work through passage by passage, verse by verse, no matter what it says. Uh, it helps us as a church to submit to God's word in such a way that, that it doesn't matter if it's a hard text or an easy text or a text we don't want to hear or a text we do want to hear. We just move through books of the Bible saying, God, what is it that you have to say to us? So we've been doing that through the Gospel of Mark since Easter of last year, so for about a year and a half. And our plan is to finish the Gospel of Mark uh, the fall semester. But we're taking this sort of like four-week little break right after the Last Supper and before Jesus uh, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the narrative of his crucifixion begins, we're taking a little break right here to look at the church at Antioch in the book of Acts. We're doing that for a couple reasons. One of the reasons we're doing that is this month uh, marks seven years uh, since the beginning of the work here in St. Rose to start this church. Uh, so we're celebrating a little bit what God has done over the last seven years, looking forward to what God might do in the future, and we're pausing to reflect on why we exist as a church. What is it that God aims to do in us, in this place, in us as a people, in St. Rose as a community, and we're using the church at Antioch uh, to reflect upon what God did through them as sort of a pattern of what God aims to do through every local church uh, for the past 2,000 years and until Christ returns. So last week, we looked at the beginnings of the church in Antioch. We saw two basic truths which can be found in our own church's mission statement. And that is that God builds this church by his grace and that God builds his church for his glory. Now upon looking at the city of Antioch and the church in Antioch, one of the things that we recognized was that Antioch was very much an anti-Christian place and there was no reason at all that the Christian movement should have expanded the way that it did. But Luke, the author of Acts, makes very clear who it was that was starting a church in that city. In Acts chapter 11 verse 21, Luke says, the hand of the Lord was with them. When Barnabas arrived to check things out in the city, to see if this was a legit Christian church that had just started in a very anti-Christian type of place. The text tells us in Acts eleven twenty three that when Barnabas came, it was as if he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. For Barnabas and for us, the church is grace gone visible. In other words, the church is the visual evidence of God's saving work in people. Like the mountains and stars and the expanse of the sea exist to point to the glory of the God who made them, we, as a group of Christians in St. Rose, St. Rose Community Church, we exist to point people to the glory of God in a way that mountain and stars and seas can't do. Unlike any other created thing in the universe... God Almighty decided to reflect himself most clearly in humans. But not only that, not only do we reflect the image of God in the way that we've been created, we reflect things that no, nothing else in creation can reflect. We reflect beings that have received forgiveness, mercy, grace, saving 
power. No other creature in the universe can boast of this sort of grace and mercy that the Lord has bestowed on us. So we exist in our creation and in the salvation of our souls through faith in Jesus. We exist to point to the glories of the God who saved us. But how do we do that? How do we glorify the God of the universe? If sun, moon, stars exist to point to the glory of God and we exist to point to the glory of God, what is it that we're actually aiming to do to accomplish that end? Well, Barnabas gives the church in Antioch this command in verse 23, and he says, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. But again, that's, that's general. I mean, what does it mean to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? What's the purpose? We can get into dangerous waters if we define that purpose however we want, right? Because then it just becomes our purpose, not the purpose of the God of the universe. So that's the question we're asking. How do we reflect the glory of God? What is it we're trying to be and do at St. Rose Community Church as Christians? And we're going to look back in Acts 11 at just sort of the testimony of what happened in this new church for clues as to what this actually looks like in their lives. So, so all that introduction being said, let's look. Uh, we're going to reread verses 19. We're going to go all the way to 30. And then we're going to jump to chapter 13 at another sort of scene in the Antioch church. So let's look at verse 19 together. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there's some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed... And listen to how it describes what happened. They believed, turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. And he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went and went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius, so the disciples, so these new Christians in Antioch, the disciples determined, made a decision, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So to send help, send financial resources to Christians in another city in, in Judea, and, and another area in Judea, verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now jump over to Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. All right, let's, let's pray together. God, you have preserved these sort of snapshot moments in the life of the church at Antioch for us to read and for us to reflect and for us to be instructed on how it is and what it is that we are called to do and be as a church, God. And so I pray right now, Father, uh, that you would please uh, remove any distractions, that you would remove me out of the way, God. Help me 
to speak only true things that come from your scriptures, and may they be so clear and so uh, convicting and so encouraging and comforting and powerful, God, that we pray that that these scriptures would um, motivate faithfulness according to your steadfast purpose, just as Barnabas encouraged the church to do, God. We, We ask that you would work a hundred miracles, a thousand miracles in this place through your word understood. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to notice when you look at community life in the book of Acts, the thing that I want you to notice is how God-focused the community life became in the church at Antioch. The thing that I want you to see in this is maybe not going to leap off the page as you're just reading, but I just want you to notice the repetition of things and notice how their world sort of became centralized around the Lord. I mean, for these Christians, God was not an idea. He wasn't simply a different way of living, a different kind of morality than the rest of the pagan world that they were living on. He, he wasn't a distant concept. God was a very real, present, and life-shaping being in a place that once was predominantly dominated by the worship of false gods that you would appease to get the things you really wanted, like pleasure or money or safety from harm, in a place where false gods were appeased to get the good life. I want you to notice how the, this community of people turned away from that, but they turned to something, or rather they turned to someone. In chapter 11, verse 20, the message that was preached is the message of the Lord Jesus. Not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus, a, a new master for their lives, a new person to turn to, follow, respond to, obey. That, that This is a, a personal Lord. Verse 21, they believed And they didn't just believe facts about some historical guy named Jesus who died on a cross and rose again to help it to where they don't go to hell anymore. They didn't just turn to facts, right? They believed facts, that's true, and they turned to the Lord. They turned away from one way of life and then turned to the Lord of a new kind of life. Verse 22, it's the grace of God, Barnabas sees. Verse 23, it's faithfulness to their Lord, which Barnabas moves them toward. In chapter 13, we have this window in what they do when they gather together. We get to see what Christians were doing 2,000 years ago through this little paragraph, and we're told that they're worshiping, praying, fasting. There's a, there's a Godwardness to all of this, a God-centeredness to all of this, and that is an important thing to recognize and remember, because I'm afraid that we can read the book of Acts, and we can marvel at the mission work. We can get excited about the church planting part, the missionary sending part, the productive sort of reach the world part. We all like to feel like we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We can be amazed at the perseverance through persecution and and be amazed by the narrative of it all. But we can miss the God-centeredness of it. We do not exist as a church or even as Christians. We don't exist as Christians to simply accomplish godly tasks. Or even to to accomplish God-given tasks. Those tasks, that mission, which the book of Acts is all about, that the apostles were on, that the church of Antioch joined, must have its roots in a deeper foundation than simply having a desire for more churches to be planted or even the good desire for less people to go to hell. It's got to be more than that, more than a good cause, more than a sense of purpose in life. It has to be even deeper than just a thankfulness for your salvation. Our mission as church churches individuals, our reason for living, our giving, our going, our evangelizing, our discipling at the source of the wellspring of everything that we do must be, first and foremost, a love for the Lord himself. Those things come after there's been a meaningful turn to the Lord of the universe and a recognition that he is better 
than all of the gods that were leading you to destruction in your past life. Our church's mission statement at St. Rose Community Church, you'll find it on the website, you find it on the back of our t-shirts, is love the Lord, make disciples, plant churches by his grace for his glory. And there's a reason that love the Lord comes first in that order of phrases. If you're a note taker this morning, there's one big point this morning, and then five expressions of it. The big point is this, we exist to love the Lord. Not a super complicated sentence, but not the easiest to live out. And we believe in this church, just as the Antioch Christians believed when they heard the message preached about the Lord, we believe God is real, that he created the world, that he set a standard for the world, that we as humans rebelled against that standard, failed to meet that standard. We believe God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to take the punishment for our failures. We believe that God's desire is for us to desire him. He wants our affection, our worship, our devotion, our love. He does not need our giftings or our abilities or our productivity. He does not need us to operate at a high capacity to accomplish a church planting mission for him. We do not exist to just Avoid big sins and do some good deeds. He's not even after your behavioral change in and of itself. The God of the Bible is not saving people in the world so that there might be more nicer people in the world. He's not just needing a higher number of nice people. That's not what glorifies God most. The God of the Bible is saving for himself a people that there might be more worshipers in the world. Now, they're probably going to be nice. They should be. They're just genuine worshipers. <laughs> but the main aim is that he's saving people who will glorify him in their expression of genuine love for God. And we see this desire of God's from the earliest passages of the Bible. This is a consistent teaching that God's desire for you in the room this morning is not just that you live a better Christian moral life. His desire for you this morning is that you desire him. That, that you find joy and gladness and peace and comfort and stillness and, and satisfaction in your relationship to the one who made you. If you don't believe me, let's, let's listen to the testimony of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is a beautiful book of the Bible. It's the collection of sermons that Moses is giving to the people of God. And just listen to the theme, the constant theme of Moses to the people of God in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him. You gotta love that, uh, that duality there, to fear him and love him. Anybody have a, uh, maybe a father figure in your life that bo you held both those things? In a, in a proper tandem, right? <laughs> you feared him and loved him, right? There was a reverence for the position, how much more so with God. There's a, there's a, there's a fear of the eternal one. <laughs> there's the bigness side, but yet the intimate side where he draws us near to him. So you're to serve your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Uh, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments always. I and mean, we could keep going through Deuteronomy, but we'll pause on Deuteronomy, pick up with Joshua, the next leader of the people of God. And he, struck, he beats the same drum. Joshua 22, verse 5. Only be careful. Observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. What is the commandment? To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways and keep his commandments. To cling to him. And serve him with all your heart and with all your 
Saul, years later, King David would lead the people in praises and worships of God by writing out psalms. And many of those psalms are just a declaration of a thankfulness for God's love and a declaration of our love of God. Psalm 18, verse 1. They would sing this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord's my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Do you hear what the psalmist does? He's just trying to put words into how he loves the Lord. This is poetry to God, is it not? I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was in Mark, Jesus was not being novel. When he answered what the greatest commandment was, he was just picking up on what the whole Bible had been teaching uh, from Genesis. Jesus, what's the most important thing that we are to do as followers of God? Mark chapter 12, verse 29, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What does God desire of you? What does God desire from us as a church? How does God aim to be glorified, to be made known, to be great in this place and from this place? He wants us to find a relationship with him to be the most satisfying, most joyful, most important thing in our lives. Now, now is that different? God's desire for us to love him, is that different from God's desire for us to glorify him. Now, this is what, uh, if you're taking the, the spiritual formation track class, uh, this is the type of thing you're talking about on Sunday mornings. We just talked about it this morning, and it just so happened that we're preaching on this concept, this question. Is God's desire to be glorified different than his command for us to love him? And the answer is no. His majesty is reflected best when we see and enjoy and love him most. So God's desire to be glorified is not different than his desire for us to love him. And our desire to be truly happy is not different than God's desire for us to love him. Because it's in the loving God more that we will find true happiness. It's in the loving God more that we will find joy in life. The, the phrase that they'll be meditating on in that class on spiritual formation is this. Um, uh, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So he'll be made to look majestic when we actually enjoy and love him most. Does that make sense? Let me give you a couple scenarios. I think Piper uses this in his book. I can't remember. Somewhere in it or somewhere in his sermons. Let me give you two scenarios, okay? Scenario number one, I come home and I give my wife flowers. Actually, my wife doesn't care for flowers that much. I come home and I give her a white chocolate mocha decaf from Starbucks. That just hits different than flowers in my house. <laughs> so I come home and I have a decaf white chocolate mocha from Starbucks and I give it to her and I, and I say when I give it to her, I wanted to get this for you because you are precious to me and I'm so thankful for the way that you love me and love our family. And these are the, the specific ways that you've just so well loved us in the last week. And I, and I just wanted to bless you in some kind of way to try to communicate my affection for you. Now that's scenario one. Now what if scenario two, I do the exact same action, the exact same moral good, and I give her the, the white chocolate mocha, and I say, I read in a book that good husbands are supposed to do this. Hopefully it worked. And I walk in. Now, same action, right? Same action. Which one painted her to be the more valuable to me? Scenario one, right? Not scenario two. It does not magnify her that I did something out of duty just so that I could somehow have some kind of benefit. It magnified her when my action was motivated by genuine infatuation with her and love for her. I believe that God's desire for his people is not that they just believe facts about him. 
but they turn to him as the most precious being in the universe, as a relational uh, God whom we now know and love. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what faith looks like. We love God in such a way that relationship with him, honoring him, loving him becomes more important and the most important joy in our lives compared to anything else. We, we love God more than we put our trust and our hope and our love in jobs or possessions or desires, even before blood, family members. This is what God wants from us individually, but it, what God wants from us corporately, a corporate turning to a Lord who has saved us. The church at Antioch turned to the Lord. And though the text doesn't explicitly say that they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can actually see their love expressed through the narrative. Now, we exist to love the Lord, but genuine love is never fulfilled until it's expressed. Right? You can't, you can't see love like a thing. Right? No more than you can see wind. What do you see? You see the effects of wind on the surrounding uh, world. You can't see love as a thing, but what you see is the effects of love, the overflow of love, the actions of love. So, so love is never truly, genuinely fulfilled until it's expressed in some way. And I argue that joy is never genuinely fulfilled until it's expressed in some way. It's you scream on a roller coaster. There's an expression to the emotions or the feeling inside. There's, there's a fulfillment of it in the expression of it. And love demands expression. Genuine love makes you want to say, I love you. Genuine love wants to show itself. And so what we're going to see, just for the, so, so that's sort of the first leg of the sermon, first half of the sermon. Now let's say, okay, if we exist to love the Lord, what does its expression look like in the community life of our church? Well, what did it look like in the church at Antioch? Here's uh, five expressions of it. Number one, we express love for God through learning. Through learning. Now we'll talk more about this next week in depth, but notice how Barnabas understands what the first steps need to be in this new church. He recognizes, okay, new Christians, they've turned to the Lord. What is it that they need to start doing immediately? And he thinks, who could teach them most clearly and best? And who comes to his mind? None other than Paul, because he thinks, okay, Paul is both Roman and Jews. There, there's Gentiles and Jews happening in this church. He knows the Old Testament better than anybody I know. He's a gifted teacher. We need to get somebody into this new group of people so that he can begin teaching them what the Lord is like, whom they've just turned to, right? You don't have to know a whole lot to become a Christian. You got to know that there's one true God who is holy and perfect, and then you're not, and that you need him to save you, and the way that he did it was through Jesus, and you can't bring anything to the table. That's what you need to know. But there's more to know of God than that moment, and, and Barnabas says, these guys, if they're going to love God well, they're going to need to know him. So look at verse, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, we see this happening throughout the book of Acts, that any, any place where you see people become Christian, they immediately become a learning community. In fact, I would argue that because of the spread of Christianity, you also have spread of literacy, and learning and schools because when you become a Christian you recognize I'm a little finite person and there's a massive God of whom I don't know much about and so what happens is churches are planted they become learning communities everywhere they become places where teaching and hearing sound teaching is central to the life that they share together and Paul apparently taught them for a year that means a great many of people wanted to hear more about this God whom they have turned to so what is an expression of love is an expression of love not a desire to know someone more deeply right you're a young single person here going on dates, hopefully the motivation for that dating or that concept of dating is that 
you've felt some sort of affection for that person that causes you to desire to want to more know them more deeply. And as you get to know them more deeply, that affection will either grow or it will fade. Or it'll evaporate because on the first date, you don't know. <laughs> but the aim is that you might know them more deeply. See, we express love for God when we want to know what he's like, what he's done, what he said, what he desires, what he's planning, how we please them. The best marriages, right, um, the healthiest of marriages are marriages where each party never stops trying to learn uh, about their spouse. Almost like God, it's a never-ending learning experience. <laughs> you want to know what makes them tick so that you can better love them and and so it is with the christian i mean psalm 119 verses 129 uh, this is why it describes god's words in this way your testimonies are wonderful therefore my soul keeps them the unfolding of your words give light it imparts understanding to the simple i open my mouth i pant because i long for your commandments turn to me be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name love for god's word is always intertwined with love for God himself. It's difficult to love someone and care very little for what they have to say. Right? I, I would not advise you trying this with a spouse. Say you love her, tell other people that you love her, and then disregard everything she says this week as if she's not speaking at all. Seems like a silly parable. Who would do that, right? On purpose. <laughs> But how many of us do that with the Lord of the universe? When we say we love God, we tell other people we love God, but there's actually no expression to that love because most days of the week we disregard everything that he said as if he's not spoken at all and we don't intend to learn anything new about him. Express your love for God through listening and learning and praying to know more. See, God is glorified in you and God is glorified in this church as we express our love for him in our desire to know him more and to see him more clearly. If you think that you've seen all that there is to see of the God of the universe, I just want you to think about Moses on Mount Sinai after he has seen God deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt through ten plagues, a parted Red Sea, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, and he's standing on the mountain before God, and Moses prays to the Lord, please show me your glory. Moses didn't believe that he'd seen all that there was to see, but that there was more to know of God. We express love for God through learning, but it doesn't stop there, right? Uh, expression number two, we express love for God through obeying. Notice what others in Antioch were noticing about these disciples. Verse 26. Into verse 26 it says, And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now, the disciples in Antioch, they don't just learn about Jesus. Apparently, they begin to look like Jesus. The word Christian was not a word that, that Christians gave to themselves. Do you recognize that? The word Christian was a derogatory term by the outside world in Antioch to make fun of these people who were like little Christs, little Messiah people, little Savior and Lord people. Everything they did, everything they talked about, they tried to be like Jesus, and they kept talking about Jesus. Apparently, they were hearing the teaching of Jesus through the lips of Paul and Barnabas, but then they were also obeying whatever they heard in the marketplace, at the, uh, uh, down at the store, right? In the lives that God had uh, placed around them. And so the outside world labeled them Christians. Now, unfortunately... Man, this kind of hit me as I was thinking about this. Unfortunately, the opposite is true of many of us today. We call ourselves Christians. We label ourselves Christians, though nobody around us in the world would have recognized us as one. Now, is that, is that the case for you? Do the people in your life recognize your Christianity so much so that they would make up a name for how unique you are? Or are you really the only one that calls yourself a Christian? Do you, do you have to convince others, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. <laughs> or are the people around you just trying to make up words to explain your uniqueness? May it not be so. May, 
may it not be so that, that we're the ones declaring ourselves Christians. I pray that it's the world around us recognizing that it is so. Jesus says that love is very much tied to obedience of the Lord. I mean, John 14, verse 23, I mean, Jesus, as plain as day, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It doesn't get clearer than this, and this is where Christianity draws some hard lines and some hard teaching comes into play, because if you don't care to know what God says, to obey what God says, if there's no expression to your love for God, if you do not love God, you are not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then you stand condemned before a holy God and you will be separated from him forever. If you do not want more of God in this life, you won't have him in the next. If you live your life saying, I do not want the Lord to infringe on my freedom, then God will let you have your freedom forever. It will be a freedom from God, and thus a freedom from anything good, a freedom from any of the blessings that flow from God himself. That's what hell is. It's a, it's a, it's a place where people in this life Refuse to say to God, have thine own way, to where in the end God says, have thine own way. Have an existence apart from me, even though I've made a way through the blood of Jesus to have an existence with me, in relationship to me. Listen, God does not want your faith in facts. He doesn't want your Catholicism. He doesn't want your perfect Baptist Sunday school attendance from when you were a kid. God doesn't want your version of morality. What God desires, according to the New Testament, is your love. He wants your faith, which is expressed in love, which is expressed in obedience. We're saved through faith. Faith is expressed in love. Love is expressed in obedience, which is why if you're willingly directly, regularly, intentionally ignoring God's word and disobeying it, then there's reason to question genuine faith. Faith, love, obedience, and, and that love and that faith and that obedience leads us to want to obey. Not perfectly, we're always going to fail, but wants, it leads us to want to obey God even when it costs us things. Look at um, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, as they're seeking to try to be faithful. The outside world has said, man, that, them are some stinking Christians right there. And they get news in chapter uh, 11, verses 27 through 29, that a famine is going to come on the land. And then in verse 29, it says this, so the disciples, which means followers, right, the followers of Jesus, they determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So so famine's coming, but rather than focus on preserving themselves, they, they immediately, they're like, okay, what would Jesus do, right? <laughs> how do we reflect Jesus in the moment? Instead of seeking to preserve themselves, they say, okay, how can we sacrificially give to provide for other Christians in an area where there's more persecution? They're going to be hit harder by this famine in a different way than this famine. They might not know this famine's coming, so how can we save up to help them? And from an outsider looking into the Christian movement, they're like, these people are nuts, a famine is coming. Preserve yourself. Save yourself. You know this, but their immediate reaction is, let's sacrifice of ourselves for the betterment of other people. Now, now, what does that action of sacrifice of what they have say about the God they worship? You see, sacrifice always highlights the value of the thing you sacrifice for. Sacrifice always highlights the value of the thing you sacrifice for. We sacrifice something valuable only when we believe that there's something else more valuable, right? You, you gave a bunch of money for something, right? Because you thought the thing which you were giving money for was more valuable than you keeping that money, right? So you sacrifice that money to get that 
thing. Our sacrifices always express esteem for someone or something. And so it's true. Expression number three, we express love for God through sacrifice. And we don't have to work really hard to find this in the Bible, right? I mean, the whole Old Testament, the way in which the people of God worship was through a sacrificial system, right? It was a, it was a system in which you sacrifice what was valuable to you uh, so that you might communicate to the world, God is more valuable than this. In fact, you could look at the Old Testament or you could just look at the cross itself. I mean, we're saved by a sacrifice, right? I mean, the cross itself is a testimony of two values, two valuable things. Jesus' horrible death was a testimony first to how much God values his own justice. I mean, God will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will not allow sinners into the presence of God without payment for sin. He values his own glory to maintain to the world that I am righteous and holy and I hate sin very much. He, he crushed Jesus uh, because there was a value. There was a sacrifice that was made as a value to preserve the glory of God. This is who God is. But at the same time, the cross also testifies to how much God values you. And he, he loves you. Now, now, don't miss what I'm saying. God values you. Not because you're awesome and valuable. <laughs> because he declared value to you. That's why we sing in that song, uh, 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 Two Wonders I Confess, right? Um, my worth and my unworthiness. I'm unworthy of God's love, but God has found me worthy just by his grace, right? So, so how was love most fully expressed for us? Like, how do we know that God loves us? Where do we look to find the expression of love in the Bible? Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love. God shows his love for us. How? And that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you, you want to know how much God values you? What was he willing to sacrifice for you? Now, if I want to know your love for God, at least one of the questions I'll ask is, what do you sacrifice in order to express love for that God. For the whole Christian life, our whole lives become an offering to the Lord because we love him. Right? I mean, after at the end of the ex explanation of what saved us, the gospel message, Paul says in Romans 12, 1, this is what it is. This is, this is what Christian living is all about. That I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship how do we express love to god and we hold on to, to nothing we 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 give it to the lord we let him be lord of it we express our love to him by letting it go it's rubbish anyways by comparison with the, the glories that jesus has promised us the money and the houses and the cars and the job and the life and the relationships and the temporary pleasures of a lustful moment they're not as valuable as my relationship to god and all that he's promised me in that how do I express love for God? It's through my obedience to him, even if it cost me. And I do so believing that in the end, it's not actually costing me. <laughs> that the eternal return is more valuable than the temporal cost. It's the best investment in the history of investments. We express love for God, knowing that his desire is not just for our love, but for him to lavish love on us for eternity. That's not all that we see in Antioch. Let's keep rolling. So there's this normal rhythm of love expressing in the Antioch church life, a normal rhythm of stirring one another up to love God more deeply. And Acts chapter 13 actually just opens the window for us to peek in on what a worship gathering was like, right? Listen to what's taking place in Acts 13, verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I want you to, to focus in first just on that word worshiping. 
Apparently, this crazy group of little Christs regularly gets together to just worship. Now, what in the world does worship mean? When Luke says worshiping, what did he have in mind? Well, it seems to be a group event, not a private event, where people are coming together to somehow revel in, enjoy, and just speak the wonderful things that God has done for him, them and is doing and will do. Worship, what it is, what we do this morning, worship is a regular communion moment between us and God, where we meditate on true things about God, and we respond to those true things about God. This is what we do this morning. Sam Corners, this is what we're going to do this here in just a minute. We're going to remind ourselves of things we know to be true about God. We're going to gaze at him through the scriptures and the songs. We do this when we baptize. We do this when we do the Lord's Supper. We just, we remind ourselves of true things about the God in whom we love, and then we respond appropriately. We sing, we rejoice, we confess, we repent, we give, we pray, we rest in him, we're comforted by him, we're provoked by him we're stirred up by him to think about how we can serve him more faithfully this is why you'll notice that in our church services man here at st rose Community church we don't we don't want to waste words our songs are picked particularly our scriptures are picked particularly we're wanting to look at true things and then respond appropriately to the god that those true things describe and listen this paul says this this is what we do colossians three sixteen. somebody's worshiping right there praise the lord let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in the hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Number four, we express love for God through corporate worship. We come together And we say together in a bunch of different ways, God, we love you. We have failed to love you. We want to love you more. We want other people to love you. Help us to love you. Help us to help others to love you. Thank you for loving us. Romans 15, 7, that together with one voice, we glorify the God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing that I want to direct your attention to, perhaps the clearest set of spiritual disciplines that show God's desire for our desire is what they were doing in uh, verse 3 it says now we're going to come back and talk about the whole sending out and all that kind of stuff but I'm just highlighting what they're doing in the service right verse 3 they're fasting and praying and this is our last one we express love for God through prayer and fasting The very idea of prayer is an interesting thing. God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your needs. He knows your heart disposition. Yet for some reason, still, God commands you to pray. For some reason, he wants you to talk to him. And it's not as though he needs to learn something about you. It's not as though he thinks he's going to be convinced by some sort of argument you have for how he can better rule the world. So then the question becomes, okay, then why would God have us pray? Unless it's through prayer that we give unique glory to God by expressing a desire to commune with him. By expressing our love for him and our need for him in all areas of life. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence upon the Lord to meet every spiritual and physical need that we have. It's a communication line in which we say, God, I want more of you. I need more of you. I want to spend time with you. I want to have a relationship with you. And in the book of Acts, the Christians devoted themselves to this. Praying for boldness to preach, for Peter to be released from prison, for the appointing of new deacons and elders, for the salvation of their persecutors, uh, praying praises even from a prison cell. Uh, They're praying in communion with God, and fasting was the accomplice to this prayer. We see the same thing in Acts 14, 23. Their prayer and fasting hooked together. Fasting being this, they, basically what they would do is they would abstain from food for a particular season so more time could be given to prayer. I wonder when the last time you've done that. Abstain from a meal so that you could pray more. Because in this time, I mean, gosh, how much work was it to prepare for a meal? I mean, we feel like it takes a lot of time, but we don't got to go outside and kill the goat, Right? 
And we just go through the McDonald's line. They, 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 they stop all the preparations for meals so they can have more time in communion with God to focus in on him. And as their stomachs yearn for physical nourishment, what they recognize is I need spiritual nourishment more. There's this living parable that Jesus uses when he tells Satan, I live not by bread, but by the bread that comes from the word of God, right? That, that what you need is not just physical food. What you need is spiritual food. You need to spend time with the Lord. Fasting is a declaration that, that you need God. <laughs> One big point. We exist to love the Lord. Five expressions of it. We see it in the church. We learn. We obey. We sacrifice. We worship. We pray and fast. And so let me just conclude with a question. Do you love the Lord? That's the mission of our church every week. We're, we're, we exist to try to come together to help each other love the Lord more. It's not to, to get more people in the seats or to accomplish some sort of big dream and have awesome marketing and, and, and have a thousand St. Rose Community Churches all over the world. That'd be weird. It's weird. Our goal is, to, is that we might stir each other to love God more. Do you love the Lord? In what ways do you need to more consistently express your love for the Lord? If you're here and you feel no love for the Lord, let me just urge you pray to God to give you the love that you don't feel for God. Because where does love come from? It comes from God. So if you feel like you have no love to give to God, then ask him to give you the love to then give back to God. Because love flows from him. So cry out to him that he give you what you don't have to give back to him. We do this in all of life. Every breath that you breathe is a gift from God. You use that breath to then sing praises back to him. This is what you do in everything. Everything you give back to the Lord was God's originally whether it be breath in your lungs or with a capacity to love him the way he desires you to love him. We exist to love the Lord, but even our love for the Lord, right, is by his grace and for his glory. He does the miracle of love in our hearts by his grace, and he gets the glory even in our capacity to love him. Any love I've ever given the Lord was a love he'd given me first. Let's pray and uh, declare our love for the Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to love you more. Turn us to you as we worship you in this moment. May our church be a church known for people who love God more than anything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song together.